Well, thank you. What a wonderful service today. And uh, I especially was blessed by our special ed. They always bless me. And to uh, have them participate in the service today is a special blessing to me. Thank you. Thank you for all that work with them. When I was younger, I attended a revival service once where the evangelist said, if you doubt your salvation, that means that you are not saved. Well, I had some doubts, and he certainly didn't help me any with that, but is that right? If you doubt your salvation, that means then that you are not saved. Are there legitimate reasons for doubting salvation? Well, the truth is, there are some who doubt because they are not saved. It reminds me of the story of the man who went to the psychiatrist, and he said, Doc, you have to help me. He said, I have a terrible inferiority complex. He said, I just feel that everyone is better than me. Everyone is smarter than me. Everyone is a better athlete than I. I just have this terrible inferiority complex, and you have to help me. Well, the psychiatrist did a battery of tests after he did. Another appointment was made. The man came before the psychiatrist again. and He said, Doc, can you help me? And the doctor said, well, I've done the test and you do not have an inferiority complex. He said, oh, I don't. Well, what do I have? He said, you're inferior. <laughs> well, there are some people who doubt their salvation simply because they are not saved. George Truett, the revered pastor of First Baptist Dallas, said he believed that most members of the church were not saved. That most members of the church really do not know Jesus as Savior. But, but what about those who are saved and yet they doubt? Why is that? Well, I think sometimes it's because one is harassed by Satan. For instance, we all know that we are not worthy of salvation. We do not deserve salvation. We know that. And so Satan then comes and says to us, look, you're unworthy of salvation. What have you ever done to deserve to be saved? You are not saved, and so we're harassed by Satan. But why would he do that? Well, I think it's because he is able to render us ineffective in our Christian walk. And so if you are saved and he can render you ineffective, well, that is something. You see, if you are saved but you have doubts you're not sure about it, then you're never going to be an effective witness for Christ. I mean, how am I going to tell someone else that they need to be saved when I'm not sure that I am saved? So I think sometimes it's because we are harassed by Satan. Sometimes it's because of unconfessed sin in our lives. When we have sin in our lives and we do not deal with that sin, then it causes us to doubt because our prayers are not answered. There is no power in our life. We have unconfessed sin in our life. And then that causes us to doubt if we have a relationship with the Lord. Another reason, I think, is because we fail to grow in our spiritual walk. We become a believer, but then we do not grow, and that causes us to doubt if we know the Lord. If you, if you would turn to, before we look at our text, look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me show you what I'm talking about here. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 5, Peter says, In your faith, all right, so that is the foundation, in your faith, supply moral excellence. So what he's saying here is that the foundation is our faith in Christ. That is foundational. But then when we have the foundation, we are supposed to build something on it. 
So he said, in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, in your brotherly kindness, love. Now look what he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so he is saying that when we are saved, we have this foundation of faith, but we are to build on it. You are to grow in your walk with Christ. You are to grow up in Christ. What if you don't? Verse 9, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So, here's what happens to us. After we are saved, we are to build, we are to mature, we are to grow up in Christ. If we do not do that, then we begin to doubt. We begin to forget what God has done in our lives, and so there is doubt. Well, we're going to continue our study today in 1 John. Let's see what John says. 1 John chapter 5, verse number 6. Now, there are some people who say that you can't know until you die. I don't want that whoops whenever I die. You know, you can't know until you die. I guess that's like we have to pass it to know what's in it. Well, you have to die to know if you made it. So there are some people who believe that. What does John say? 1 John chapter 5, verse number 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that He has borne witness concerning His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning His Son. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. All right, let's look at this. John begins by establishing the deity of Jesus. Now look there at verse number 6. There he says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. Now Barclay said the meaning is that he who entered into his Messiahship or was shown to be the Christ through water and blood. All right, so John now is establishing the deity of Jesus. Now he concludes that you might know that you have eternal life. So you begin by establishing the deity of Jesus. And he said that Jesus came by the water. That is a reference to baptism. Because the deity of Christ was confirmed at his baptism. The Bible says in Matthew 3, 17, And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So at his baptism, the water, at his baptism, there was the confirmation of his deity. And then he says, and the blood. That would be a reference to the cross. Here's the problem. There were those in the church who believed that Jesus came 
by water, but not by blood. They believed that Jesus, the deity of Jesus, the Messiahship, that the baptism was essential, but not the cross. Now, that was the heresy of the Gnostics. And much of what John is writing is concerning the heresy of the Gnostics. The Gnostics believed that at the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, I mean, the deity of the Christ, the Messiahship, descended on Jesus in the form of a dove. So, the Gnostics believe that at his baptism, the deity came to Jesus. Sometimes afterwards, the deity, the Messiahship, left Jesus. Now, I don't know when that took place, but at some time they believe that the deity came at his baptism. Sometime later, it left, and at the cross, it was a mere man who died not deity. It was a man who hung on the cross, not the deity. That then would rob him of any value for the salvation of mankind. If it were only a man who died on the cross, then there is no salvation as a result of his death. If it were only a man, then he cannot impact or affect my salvation it was simply the death of a martyr. If Jesus was not deity when he died on the cross, then he was just another man dying, another martyr dying for his belief, but his death would have no impact on the salvation of mankind. Now, that was the belief of the Gnostics. So John refutes that by calling three witnesses. Verse number 7 is the Spirit. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is the truth. So John emphasizes the, the, the witness of the Holy Spirit regarding the deity of Jesus. And he says that the Spirit was there at his baptism. Now what I want you to see is the involvement of the Spirit as a witness concerning the deity of Christ. He was there at his baptism. Matthew 3.16 and after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. So at his baptism, the Spirit was there. That's a witness. The Spirit was there. John the Baptist said that Jesus then would baptize with the Spirit. In Mark chapter 1, verse number 8, I baptized you with water, John says. I baptized you with water. But He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we see the Spirit again, this witness that John refers to. And then it was at Pentecost that Jesus gave the Spirit to the church. Acts 2.4 They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So what John is saying, because of what the Gnostics believe, is that there are these witnesses concerning His deity. One is the Spirit, then there's water, verse number 8. For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. Now, baptism symbolized the continuing life and deity of Jesus. The continuation, the perpetuity. For instance, uh, we had a baptism this morning. Now, 
when a person is baptized, there is a picture. It is saying something. A person goes into the water, that is a picture of them before they were a believer. They go under the water, that is a picture of death and burial. They come up out of the water, that is a picture of a new life in Jesus Christ. So, do you see that Jesus is still at work in the salvation of people? I mean, 2,000 years later, people's lives are still being changed as a result of His sacrifice. And then He mentions the blood. And that refers to sacrificial offerings. In the Old Testament, they offered sacrifices, shed blood for the forgiveness of sin. And Jesus gave His life for the forgiveness of our sin. That's what the Lord's Supper is. Whenever we participate in the Lord's Supper and partake of the elements... The bread symbolizes the broken body of Christ and the juice symbolizes the shed blood of Jesus. So, there are the three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and blood. And they combine to describe the perfect Messiahship, Sonship, and Saviorhood of Jesus. And they qualify as undeniable witnesses. Why is that? Well, because in the Old Testament, according to the law... Two or three witnesses were required for something to be undeniable. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be Confirmed. So, according to the Old Testament law, for something to be undeniable, there must be two or three witnesses. One wouldn't do. Two or three witnesses. So, look at the argument in verse number 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that He has borne witness concerning His Son. So, John here is arguing from the lesser to the greater. He is arguing from the witness of man, two or three witnesses, to God, the greater, two or three witnesses. So, if something is undeniable, if there are two or three witnesses of man, what about if there were two or three witnesses that came from God? What if God gave two or three witnesses? The American commentary says, in Jewish jurisprudence, The testimony of two or three witnesses was sufficient to be received as the truth. How much more if God Himself offers three witnesses to prove His case? Smalley said the testimony of God whose divine being incorporates the divinity of the Son and the Spirit is superior in status and force to the testimony of man Because it is more trustworthy. So what you have here, John begins our passage of Scripture by establishing the deity of Jesus. The Gnostics did not believe that. They believed that the deity had left him before the cross. John refutes that by calling three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And he says those witnesses come from God and they are greater than the witnesses of man. And if man has two or three witnesses, then something is undeniably the truth. God provided three witnesses. So, 
case is made, the witnesses are given, a decision has to be made. Brooks said to reject the witnesses to deny the truthfulness of God. Now, there are those who hear the witness and they believe it to be true. Now, look at verse number 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Verse 11, and the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. All right? So the Bible says that those who believe have what? Eternal life. What does that mean? We have eternal life. What does it mean? Barclay wrote, and I found this very thoughtful, the word for eternal means far more than simply lasting forever. A life which lasted forever might well be a curse and not a blessing. There is only one person to whom eternal may properly be applied, and that is God. So then, to have eternal life means that I have the life of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that I have the peace of God. If I have eternal life, it means that I have peace with God. The Bible says in Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what that means? It means that I'm no longer at war with God. I'm not battling with God. I'm not fighting with God. I have peace with God. Are you at peace with God? Have you come to that place where peace has been established between you and God? It means that we have peace with God. It means I have the peace of God. Philippians 4, 9, the God of peace shall be with you. So what does it mean to have eternal life? It means that I have the peace of God. What does it mean to have eternal life? It means that I have the power of God. That's what John said in one of our earlier studies when he says, that greater is he who is within than he who is of the world. When a person is saved, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell that person. Greater is he who is within the Holy Spirit than he who is of the world. My friend, listen, if you are a child of God, if you're saved, you don't live your life in defeat. As Christians today, as believers today, we, we, we go around far too defeated with the Holy Spirit residing within us. That's not right. Greater is he who is within than he who is of the world. So it means that I have the power of God. It means that I have the holiness of God. What does that mean? It means I practice righteousness. If you look at chapter 2, verse 29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And it means then that I do not practice sin. In chapter 3, verse number 9, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So what does it mean to have eternal life? It means that I have holiness. It means that I practice righteousness and I do not practice sin. If you have eternal life, you have the holiness of God. You do not habitually practice unrighteousness, you habitually practice righteousness. It does not mean that you never fall, but it does mean you do not stay there. You do not habitually practice unrighteousness. It means that I have the love of God. In chapter 3, verse number 14, he says, We know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brethren. So I have the love of God. It means I have the life of God. In chapter 5, verse number 12, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And so when he is talking about the life that we have in God, yes, that speaks of quantity. We understand that part. But my friend, it also speaks of quality. 
Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. So it speaks not only of quantity, it also speaks of quality. So there are those who believe the witness and they have eternal life, the life of God. But there are those who do not believe in verse number 10b. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. Now, ladies and gentlemen, for one not to believe the witness means that person does believe that God is a liar. I do not believe the witness, but I do believe that God is a liar. And therefore, they, they reject the only Savior in verse number 11. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Now, I know that there are many, especially today, who reject the notion, the idea, the theology, that there is only one way of salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. There are many who do not believe that. And perhaps that's an area where some of you struggle, that there is only one way of salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. Karl Barth, the theologian, wrote, The theory of universal pardon maintains that God, being a loving God, will not hold unswervingly to the conditions he has laid down. While he has threatened eternal condemnation for all those who do not accept him, he will in the end relent and forgive everyone. John totally rejects that idea. He says that there is salvation in only Jesus. Folks, it is impossible to have the Father while rejecting the Son, since they are inseparable. See, they are inseparable, so I cannot have God as my Father unless I'm willing to accept Jesus as His Son. So there are three witnesses. There's a Spirit, water, and blood. And John says there are some who believe the witness, they accept the witness, and there are those who do not. It's important because your decision determines your destiny. In verse number 12, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So according to what John is saying, we have two options available to us. The witnesses are given. We have two options available to us. We believe or we do not believe. And Jesus said something similar when he said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. But gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. So Jesus is saying the same thing. He says that there are two roads. There are two choices. And you must choose one or the other. He said the unbeliever has chosen the wrong path. The gate is wide. It requires no decision. Some of you today might, maybe the Holy Spirit would speak to your heart and be drawing you to Christ, and yet you would say, well, I'm not going to make a decision today. Well, you just made one. You see, the idea that I'm not going to make a decision is to make a decision. So when someone says, no, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that today, well, you just made a decision. It requires no decision. It requires no courage. And it requires no sacrifice. The way is easy. Southern Baptist Convention begins today. There is a Southern Baptist Church that is dealing with the issue of same-sex marriage and how does the church respond to it. I would imagine that as we go forward that every church is probably going to have to address the issue one way or the other. But this particular church has addressed it by saying that we have a third way. 
There are those churches who accept same-sex marriage. There are those churches who reject same-sex marriage. And they say that we have a third way. We are not going to pass judgment on it, and you can therefore join our church and be a part of our family, a part of our church. Well, according to the article, as it continued on, there were people who were leaving the church because the truth is they made a decision and there is no third way. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, here's the thing is that we are always looking for an easy way. And let me tell you, if you're committed to the Word of God, there is no easy way. There can be a kind way. There is a loving way. But there is not an easy way. We're all, Jesus is saying that the gate is wide. It requires no decision. It requires no courage. It is easy. The way is broad. There are many ways of salvation. It has been likened to a, a river, and we're all just drinking out of different straws. There's the Christian straw. There's the Jewish straw. There's the Muslim straw. But we're all drinking out of the same straw. The way is broad, but here's what Jesus said. It leads to destruction. That's what you need to understand. It's the easy way, the wide way, but it leads to destruction. Now, Jesus said the believer's chosen the way of life. The gate is small. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. According to Jesus, the, the, the way of Christianity is a narrow way. We keep wanting it to expand, but it is a narrow way. It is only in Jesus Christ. It is narrow. And, and if it's narrow, that means that you leave the crowd. You cannot walk the narrow way and be with the crowd. Friend, listen. If you are in the crowd, then you are not on the narrow way. It just doesn't, I mean, look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They left the crowd to follow the narrow way, but the Bible says that it leads to life. It's a narrow way, but it leads to life. So let me conclude. Perhaps today you are an unbeliever, but you want to go to heaven. Maybe you're not sure, but you want to. How do you do it? How do I do it? Well, I think that basically there are two things. First of all is to repent of sin. It's to acknowledge that I am a sinner because the Bible says, except you repent, you shall likewise perish. So there is repentance of sin. And the word repent is a word that means a change of mind that produces a change of direction. It means that I'm going this way, I have a change of mind, and now that I'm going in the opposite direction. I was going through the wide gate, now I'm going through the narrow way. Okay? So repentance, it means that I know that I'm a sinner and I repent of my sin, I turn away from my sin. And then I put faith in Jesus Christ to save me. I trust Him. I believe the witness. I believe that... He is the Son of God, that He is the Savior, that He died to save me, and He is sufficient, and I commit my life to Him. You might say, well, does that mean I become a Baptist? No, that, that you know, that, a lot of Baptists are not going to heaven. I, I, you know, I hate to say that, but that's just the truth, because you don't get into heaven for being a Baptist. You get into heaven for being a Christian. It's because I know Jesus Christ, and that is it. So, maybe you're an unbeliever, and you want to be saved, you repent of sins and trust Jesus, but... If you are a believer, you need to know that you're saved. And so he says there in verse number 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. You know why that's important? 
Because that's the only way that you can serve effectively. You will not serve effectively unless you have that settled. Now, it's by faith. It's by faith. But I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And only when you have that settled can you serve effectively. Only when you have that settled can you be content in Him. You know, the truth is, I, I've come to the Lord and said, Jesus, if you don't save me, I'm going to hell. I mean, you're the only hope I've got. I don't have any other. I'm not going for any other reason, so I am totally trusting in Him, and I am content in Him. Only as you know that can you be victorious. Paul said, For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard what I've entrusted to Him until that day. Your decision has eternal consequences. He says in verse number 12, He who has the Son has the light. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the light. It's that simple. Do you have the Son? Do you know Jesus? Because it is only in Him that we have salvation. And if not, it's my prayer today that you will commit your life to Christ. Commit your life to Christ. He will give you eternal life. Quantity, but quality. Peace, power, presence, he gives. Do you know Him? Our gracious Father in God, I pray that Your Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts today. For those who, who do not know You, even if they're religious, good people, but do not know You, I pray today, Father, that You will draw them to Christ that they might be saved. Be with those who are considering being a part of this church. I pray, Father, that that's Your will that they will come to do that. Feel comfortable to do that. But bless the invitation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask that you stand with me, please, as we stand together. The choir's going to sing as they sing. If you're willing to make a commitment to the Lord, you're looking to join the church, you come. I'll greet you as you come while they sing.